This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Bishop Stuart Ruck. We're going to begin a new book study together as the family of God, and I have to say, on a Sunday, particularly when I get to kick off a new study, it does feel a little bit like Christmas morning, and that gift you've been waiting to open up, that's how I feel about the book of Philippians, is this incredible gift. I have this anticipation of what the Lord is going to teach us about Him, about the church, about the life in God. So we're going to unwrap Philippians together over the next several weeks. Often, if you've been around Christian circles, and I don't assume that all of you have, this is the book you often start studying. It is a great starter book, but don't be deceived. It's a very complex book as well. There is the theme of joy, but there is also deeply and richly in this book the theme of sacrifice, and that's what we're going to work on together. As a matter of fact, this is going to be the first series, and we're going to do five series, four more, that speak to what we call the five S's. I preached on the five S's from Acts chapter 2 in May. We'll put that sermon online. You can go back and listen to it. But basically, out of Acts chapter 2, we're talking about the five S's that make up the life of the church, the people of God, and the life of those who follow Jesus. Those S's are very simple. Being fully scriptural, fully sacramental, and I'll explain what that word means. Full of the Spirit, free to sacrifice our lives for others. Focus on the salvation of others. So this series, Free to Sacrifice, also starts a process, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, I'm not sure. But we'll get them all in. All right, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we just, we just need you now by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual ability to hear the Word of God, to believe the Word of God, we do ask, Lord, that we would be not only hearers of the word, but today we would be doers of the word. And that Jesus, your person, your presence would dominate, Lord, this teaching. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The American collective memory has in it a wide diversity of men and women who would be profiles of courage. And it's good as an American to be aware of our story, to be aware of our history, to be aware of some of these often known sort of heroes of courage. If I was to pick one that, that might come to mind, if you have familiarity with American history, it would be the president at the turn of the century, 19th to 20th, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was just kind of known as a man of bravado. He was a known as a man of high drama. He himself loved heroism and kind of embraced that sort of personage that as part of his personality. He was known, for example, as a non-military person. He manipulated his way into the American military uh, during the Spanish-American War because he so wanted to experience valor in battle. And he literally led a battalion of what they called Rough Riders up San Juan Hill in this moment that was, would later actually make him famous across America, and that's where Theodore Roosevelt became the household name for many Americans. He took the whole idea of bully pulpit, that was Roosevelt's invention, that the president has a communication whereby he can bully. Started with Roosevelt. But there's a hero behind this hero. A hero that actually gets us closer to the heart of biblical courage. 
It's not Roosevelt, who the one we know is Junior, actually. It's Theodore Roosevelt Sr. It's Roosevelt's dad. Very few biographies, unknown generally to the American populace. But it's Theodore Roosevelt Sr. who gave his life, his energy, his strength. He was a follower of Jesus as best as can be gathered from the records. And he particularly gave his life and his energy for Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Roosevelt Jr. was a very sickly child. He was plagued by a profound asthma that threatened constantly his breathing. It was a life-threatening ailment. And Roosevelt Sr. would carry the three-year-old, then the four-year-old, even the five-year-old Roosevelt Jr. through the hallways of the Roosevelt house all night long so that Roosevelt would be kept upright and comforted by the warmth and the closeness to his father. His windpipe would stay open. The fluid that would collect in his lungs would at least be able to somehow have some kind of passage and Roosevelt Jr. could breathe. But it was Roosevelt Sr. And his night after night nurturing and care of Roosevelt Jr. that gave Roosevelt Jr. the opportunity to live such a life of purpose. You know what they called Roosevelt Sr.? They called him Great Heart. That name comes from a book, Pilgrim's Progress. But they said that Roosevelt Sr. was a great heart. He also sacrificed for the unseen and the marginalized of New York City at the turn of the century as well. The courage to sacrifice which is a courage that's a lot more like Roosevelt Sr. often than Roosevelt Jr. It's the courage of sacrifice in hidden, never-to-be-known-to-history ways. It's the courage to take when you would love a night of sleep, night after night, to no longer sleep for the sake, in case of this story, his son. It's the courage that gives one a great heart. That story just makes me want to be a great heart. I, I hope it instills that in you already. I, I hope you're getting a picture of what it would mean to be a great heart in this life. One who has the courage to sacrifice energy, strength, reputation, finances for the sake of something greater. In the case of the book of Philippians, for the sake of knowing Jesus, for the sake of serving the church, for the sake of loving deeply and profoundly. But to be a great heart, what Paul teaches, who was a great heart as well, is we must be in deep relationship, deep knowledge, deep understanding of the greatest heart. That to be a great heart in this life, and any human being can achieve great-heartedness in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit if they will be bonded to the greatest heart of all, the heart of Jesus. Courage. And our canon theologian reminded me that courage connects, in terms of its etymology, to the word heart. Courage comes from living a life that is Jesus always. Courage comes from living a life that is Jesus always. Courage comes from living a life that is Jesus close. And that breaks the two parts of our passage in Philippians out. First, verses 18 to 26, courage comes from Jesus always. 
Verses 27 to 30, Jesus close. You can use this devotional guide to help take notes or to study later. But let's learn, let's understand this section of Philippians chapter 1. It is written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote several letters. It was a letter, so it was actually penned and written for a community. It's a community that he knew and loved. We'll get into that in just a moment. We start, and Paul says at the very beginning of this, when we actually catch him mid-thought, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. He's referring to a previous situation he's described whereby he's suffering. He's suffering at the hands of fellow Christians. Often we think of Paul, we think of him suffering at the hands of those who did not believe that Jesus was Savior or Messiah and that they would persecute him because they did not believe it. In this case, there are people who believe Jesus is Lord and they're causing his suffering. In the midst of that complexity where other followers of Jesus are creating tension and sacrifice, he says, even in this complexity, yes, I will rejoice. He has a broader complexity than just this that's happening. If that wasn't enough, he's imprisoned. He's imprisoned because of his teaching of Jesus that has brought political complications, spiritual complications. So he's now in prison. I will rejoice, he says, for I know, because no one understands why he would ever rejoice in the light of fellow believers betraying him and living a life shackled. But I will rejoice this, for I know that through your prayers, whose prayers? The Philippians' prayers. Who are the Philippians? Think of it as a European, early kind of ancient European city in greater Macedonia that Paul helped to start. We often call that church planting. He planted or started this church with uh, several other leaders, including a woman named Lydia, who had a leadership gift and a hospitality gift. We read about that in a book called the book of Acts. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out, this imprisonment, this being hurt by fellow believers, being betrayed, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Okay, the, the English just got complicated, didn't it? Okay, so what's happening? That I won't be at all ashamed. Ashamed of what? Paul's saying, I so trust in my gospel siblings, your prayers, and I so believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that even in prison, even amidst betrayal, I won't be ashamed, which is to say, I won't stop believing that Jesus is great. I won't stop believing that Jesus is powerful. I won't stop believing amidst the suffering and the sacrifice that Jesus' cross is true and his resurrection will validate and vindicate my life. I won't be ashamed by unbelief. I won't be ashamed by losing the grasp on hope that the Lord has given me. I trust. I won't be ashamed. But that with full courage, with full heart, with great heart. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, courage comes from Jesus always. And the first thing that Paul goes to is the security of Jesus always. Your ability to sacrifice, primarily multiple micro-sacrifices, I'll say more about that in a moment. Your ability to live a life of multiple micro-sacrifices is connected to your stability in Jesus always. 
So how stable, how stable are you emotionally? How stable are you spiritually in the reality of Jesus always? For Paul teaches, verse 21, which forms a central concept here in these verses, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're newer to the Christian faith, maybe you've never heard that sentence before. It's one that is necessary to memorize, and it's poetic. In the original language, it's a beautiful piece of poetry. The original language reads something like this. I mean, translating it primarily into English. To live, Christos. To die, Kurdos. Gain. Kurdos is gain. To live, Christos. To die, Kurdos. What's Paul doing? Paul's taking the spectrum. He's taking the broadest spectrum that as a teacher you could imagine, which is life and death. There's nothing broader. There's nothing more epic. Paul always goes epic. There's nothing more epic than life and death. He's saying, here's life, here's death, all the joys, beauties, terrors of life. Primarily the terrors of death. Let me grab this spectrum life and death. And let me tell you that Jesus is Jesus always. To live Christos, to die, gain. Gain in Jesus, more of Jesus. I gain more of his presence, more of his communion, more of his love, more of his personality. To live Christos, to die, Kurdos. Do you see what he's saying? It's Jesus always. You can't find a place without Jesus where he has not gone before. How can Paul say this? Paul can say this because the centrality of the power of the cross, which Christians make central in our life together, central in our worship, central, we, we wear it on our bodies, we, we tattoo it on our skin, because the cross is central, because Jesus has already died. That thing which carries more terror than anything else for us. Anthropologists write about this, sociologists write about this, philosophers write about this. They don't need a Christian biblical worldview to understand that death carries terror. Death carries peril. Death carries question. He's done it. He's died. He's already there. I mean, don't you ever think about your death? How will it happen? Right? When will it happen? If you're a parent, I mean, you ever think about your kids' death? Of course you do. Of course we do. Paul knows that. He knows that, so he's speaking to the heart. He's saying, take courage. Take heart. Jesus is there in life. Jesus is there in death. He has died. He knows death. I'm 50. I could ask 70-year-olds, what's it like to be 70? And you could tell me what it's like for you to be 70. But you really have no idea what it's going to be like for me to be 70. You don't know. No one knows. We don't know if I'm going to make it to 70. Except Jesus. He knows. He, he's already been to death. He conquered death. He overcame it. To live Christos, to die, Kurdos. Stability. 
security. Jesus always. Here's an exercise that I've developed for my prayer life to help me live Jesus always. To help me live Galatians 1.21 is this. I think a lot about the future and I'm a leader so I kind of do future for a living. You know, I plan for the future, I, I teach toward the future, I think about the future a lot. And then I'm a dad so I've got kids and their future that I'm thinking about. And I can really get caught up in serious anxiety and unbelief. So what I do more and more is when I start thinking about the future, I begin to imagine like, what's Res like in three years? What's my family like in five years? What's my life like in 10 years? What I've been learning to do as the Lord has led me is rather than try to picture that, I just see Jesus. I just imagine Jesus. I imagine his face filling in what I think it might look like X, Y, Z in two or three years or two months. You know, it's good to imagine the face of Jesus. His incarnation biblically gives us freedom to imagine his face. For he has a face, a human, beautiful face. And we can imagine it. And we can see Jesus in our future. Yes, at our death. And yes, next week. And yes, tonight. As you think about the future. And all that it may contain. Think Jesus first. And then he can lead you to what he may want you to think about for your future. Generally, he doesn't, I think, want us to think about our future as much as we do. He'd like us to live Christos, to die Kurdos. There's a security in Jesus always, but there's also a sacrifice that comes from Jesus always. If we're going to live Jesus always, that means there are things that we're not going to live for. That means other things that we're not going to do. That means there's other feelings that we're not going to indulge or engage. There's other things that we're not going to say. There are things that we're going to say that will have profound ramifications on our social network, on our life together. It, it means that as we live Jesus always, we're going to live very differently in many different ways. And from that will come a kind of sacrifice. Paul recognizes that. Indeed, he is actually so convinced of Jesus always, he, he, would, he, he has lost the fear of death. It's fascinating to study Paul, because he's not afraid of death. I think human beings can achieve this in Jesus, but it's rare, so it's amazing to be with him and to read him, because he's not afraid of death. As a matter of fact, he says, if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yeah, which will I choose? I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Hard-pressed? I mean, like, who's hard-pressed? Like, I don't know. I want to live or I want to die. We all want to live. Unless it's Jesus always, then actually, Paul, he's kind of impassive. It's Jesus that my passion is about. My life and my death, important, but secondary. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Jesus, for that is far better. But to reign the flesh and the body, he means there, is more necessary in your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. Okay, let's stop there. I will remain. Very important phrase. Very important phrase to the courage to sacrifice and the freedom to sacrifice. What's Paul saying? He uses the word twice. What he's saying is that I am going to remain in my prison. I'm going to remain in this life. I'm going to remain in a place of sacrifice. I'm going to remain in a place of suffering. I won't be ashamed. I'll still believe in Jesus' power. I'll believe that he is Lord of all. But I am choosing to accept the sacrifice that God has given me. Do you realize that often we don't choose our sacrifice? I mean, sometimes we do, but it's rare. No, often the sacrifice is somehow comes to us. 
that the call to remain is a call to recognize there are external circumstances in many of our lives that are not going to change. Now, this is not to say that we stay in circumstances whereby we can change by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not to say that we don't continue to grow in our identity in Jesus. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, and what Paul is saying, is that there comes times when we find ourselves in a prison, and not of our own making, or perhaps even a prison of our own making that now we cannot change. Paul can't get out of prison. He can't spring himself from this place. He's there, and he says, I will remain in prison. I will remain in this life. Why? Because my remaining gives you reason to rejoice. My remaining gives you reason to live in Jesus. My remaining is living out the story of the cross and resurrection. Do you see that? He's living out Jesus' story. He understands that, yes, I will preach, but I actually will live the life of the cross, suffering, sacrifice, the life of the resurrection, vindication in God. Sometimes in an overcoming victory in the moment, often in an endurance that speaks of the power of God. Vindication by endurance, vindication by overcoming. Either way, cross, resurrection, I'm living that, he says. So I will remain. That's so important for you. That's so important for so many of you because you're finding yourself in some kind of prison. Don't overdramatize it. Rightly appraise it. And you're being called to remain. Some of you are celibate singles and you can't change that. You'd love to be married. You're open to marriage. You're praying for marriage. But right now, you can't change that. Some of you are in marriages and they are brutal to live in right now. And you seem unable to change your marriage. It's like a prison cell. Financially tight life. And you can't find a way to change the financial restrictions. It's an illness that has not yet been healed. It's something. Paul says, I will remain. Brothers and sisters, Paul is not saying that we necessarily always choose our sacrifices, but he is saying, and this is where the importance of freedom comes in Paul's thinking, we can choose the Lord in our sacrifice or not. We can choose the Lord in our suffering or not. Others must pray for us. We must have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he prefaces this in the early verses. This is a poetry. Remaining is a kind of poetry. Poetry often requires fixed verse. You work within a, not every kind of poetry, but often poetry has a fixed verse or fixed meter. You work within a certain system that feels restrictive. It feels like you have to remain within this body of understanding. But in that restriction actually comes often incredible poetic beauty. Do you see the call of the poetic Christian life? The call to live within a certain meter, a certain verse structure that you are in right now with the challenge of health or the challenge of money or the challenge of relationships. There's a remaining that God is calling you to and there can be in that beautiful verse written, the verse of the cross, the verse of the resurrection, the beautiful meter and song of a life that is free to sacrifice for the sake of others. Great hearts come from Jesus always. And then, as Paul continues, so great hearts come from Jesus close, Jesus near. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christos, 
Messiah, Savior, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So when we choose the Lord in our sacrifice, that we often haven't chosen, the sacrifice is but we choose the Lord in our sacrifice, we then can suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul's talking about a suffering for the sake of the gospel. So if you're thinking, oh, the only way I can suffer for the sake of the gospel is I'm out preaching in the open square, which you guys do all the time, right? This is highly applicable if you're thinking that way. No. Think, oh, well, I'm preaching out in the open square, and then I get arrested, and they put me in jail. That's, that's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Then you're going to have no imagination for this teaching. That's, it just won't help any of us. I don't preach in the open square, and I preach all the time. Now, what's he saying? He's saying you're preaching for the sake of the gospel because you're believing that the gospel is the good news of God in Christ, that the cross is a suffering and a sacrifice, but the resurrection is a vindication, and you're living that way. You're believing that way. So your sacrifice becomes a suffering for the sake of the gospel because you refuse to act on that sexual impulse that you know takes you contrary to the gift of the word of God. You refuse to act on that stingy moment where you don't want to give freely of what you have. You refuse to speak against that person when everyone else is. You refuse to remain quiet when you're in a conversation and you know you should speak of the goodness of Jesus. You refuse. And when that happens and a suffering follows, what are you doing? You're suffering for the sake of the gospel. Do you see the micro-sufferings that make up the sacrificial life? And don't think they're just, don't, I, I use micro simply rhetorically to try and get you to connect with the fact that your life can include this. Yes, it is very important to be aware of macro-sufferings. Yes, we at Resurrection talk all the time about the actual persecuted church, where they are literally afraid for their lives to get in their car and go to church, because it will very likely, possibly, maybe this time, be bombed. No, we're aware of that, and we cannot ignore that. But we can't also that overshadow the fact that we ourselves in this life, in this place, are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It will often be how we handle the prison, how we handle the sacrifice that God has called us into. I remember... We had four kids under the age of six, and I, I, nobody told me, I don't know why, somebody should have, how hard that was going to be. I had no idea. I didn't think kids were going to be hard, and I thought four kids under six, I just had no idea it would be so hard. And I remember being in this utterly desperate place, utterly, utterly desperate, no sleep. And I remember just saying to the Lord, this is like a prison. I mean, my kids, are not, they were at your 8.30 service, so can we just keep this between us? And I said this. <laughs> this is like a prison. I mean, I can't get out, you know? And it's every day, day in, day out. And, and they, they kept needing so much, you know? Like the babies need so much. They, they, they think you're there for them all the time, you know? Feed me, carry me. It's very, it's hard. And I was, I was at the end. The six-year-old needed me. The four-year-old needed me. The needed me. The baby needed me. And I, and I was playing second string to Catherine. She was needed even more, and I couldn't handle it. But I realized in that, I could remain. I could remain. I could choose the Lord. I could actually be free to sacrifice. Not in a compulsory way or a bitter way, but in a joyful way. I could actually give my life away for people. And God was giving me a very concrete, everyday opportunity, full of details and specificity. That was freedom. Such freedom. Okay, final piece. You can't do this alone. See, the peril of preaching a sermon like this in our beloved home country of America 
is that A, we're all sinners. Every American's a sinner. That's what the Bible teaches. So is everybody else in the world. Which means we alienate and we isolate. That's our default. We, we separate. That's, that's one of the sinful nature defaults. So I teach this, and we're already isolated, alienated people, but then I teach it to our culture, which for lots of myriad of reasons lives an incredibly isolated life. And now I'm teaching it into a suburban culture, right? And I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a suburbanite too. I teach it to a suburban culture where everything structurally and systematically has been designed so that we're more and more on our own and isolated. So we got the sinful nature thing and we got the suburban American thing and I'm teaching you about suffering, I'm teaching you about sacrifice and the freedom of sacrifice, but the, the, the absolute critical teaching that Paul gives is you can't do this alone. He's saying, you're praying for me. They were just praying for him. They were giving everything they had for him in that prison in Philippi. For, 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 they were giving from Philippi where he was in prison, likely in Rome. They were sending everything they had. It wasn't just prayer, although it was just prayer. They were deeply connected. And then he says, stand side by side. Look at that, I think it's verse 28. Stand side by side, one mind, one spirit. He's saying, you've got to have a profound Jesus sibling. You've got to have siblings in Jesus. You've got to be near to Jesus, but you've got to be near to your siblings. You've got to be really close to people, other Christians. You guys cannot live the freedom to sacrifice to be great hearts without other great hearts in your life, really close in your life, in your home a lot, knowing your situation, knowing the details, utterly and completely transparent with them. Or you won't be able to do this. You might believe in the Lord Jesus, as Paul says. But you may not be able to suffer for his sake because it's too hard alone. It's brutal, and it doesn't have to be brutal. So we have res groups, not because we're a church and we should have small groups. Oh, let's do that. No, because you've got to have people you're close to, really close to. For Americans, I say, imagine being super close to somebody in a really healthy way, and then realize you're about maybe halfway there of what it could be. It's just part of our wiring. There's a freedom to sacrifice, a courage to give our hearts through Jesus always, through Jesus close, to live Christos, to die Kurdos. Great hearts, utterly bonded to the greatest heart. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.